Hey there, and welcome to the third episode of the Drinkable Globe podcast. My name is Jeff Cialetti, and I will be your host for this evening. And I hope you like gin, because this episode will talk a great deal about gin. Even if you don't, you should really listen to it, because it's a really interesting guy. I speak with Marsh Makhtari, who co-founded with his wife the Golden State Distillery, not to be confused with the Golden State Killer. Anyway, Golden State makes a brand called Grey Whale Gin. They use a lot of foraged ingredients from up and down the California coast. It comes in this amazing light blue bottle. Yes, the whale is gray, but the bottle is blue. And Marsh has quite a storied past. Uh, he's been an actor. He did a couple of soaps, including The Young and the Restless. He also does some travel show hosting. He's done some stuff on the Food Network as well as the Travel Channel. And before we get into this, I want to pat myself on the back for a moment. I interviewed Marsh at the Wine and Spirits Wholesalers of America convention and trade show in Las Vegas a couple weeks ago. They do a couple of awards for, for new products. One of those was a, a thing they do called Brand Battle, which is like a shark tank, but for people launching new wine and spirits. I told him the day before the Brand Battle that I had a pretty good feeling that he was going to win the Brand Battle. Uh, I just got the vibe. There was a lot of buzz. And sure enough, he did win, so I totally called it. And not only did he win that, he also won the Hot New Now Media Award at the show. So this is a brand to watch. And we talk a lot about California and, of course, him being a travel host, we talk about some more exotic locations, food, drink, the usual. Anyway, here is my conversation with Marsh Mokhtari. How's the show been going for you so far? Actually, kind of crazy. You know, I've never done a show like this before. And, uh, I mean, you saw yesterday, we had like six people deep at the booth. And... Um, I don't know. It, it, people from Connecticut, uh, a lot of Connecticut folks. Connecticut? To, yeah, I don't know why. I guess it's the blue bottle, the, the whale tail. It maybe oh. resonates with people. But uh, it's it, the distributors from the East Coast have been really hot on the product. Mm. So it's been good. Okay. I had some guy from Nicaragua wanting three pallets of oh my gray God. whale gin. I'm like, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> That's terrific. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here uh, with uh, Marsh Mokhtari. I hope I pronounced your name right. Perfect. Uh, you are. Um, you've had a very interesting. I did some research on you before we did this. Obviously, you've had a very interesting life. You're an actor, uh, travel show host, um, and now you've launched this brand, uh, Grey Whale Gin. Yeah. So uh, I want to hear all about Grey Whale. Tell me something, some stuff with cool. that. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's. You know, I've lived all over the world, and it's and it's one of those things that nothing feels like home more than Cali. California is home. It's it's been home for the last twenty years. I'm an American citizen now. I'm you were born in the UK. Yeah, originally from Newcastle, just below Scotland. Mm. Um, but yeah, I live you know all over. But LA, California, that coastline just screams to my wife and I. And now we have two kids, uh, ten and eight year old. And, uh, and there was no way better to celebrate California than create a distilled spirit and literally taste California. So the gray whale. It's the king of the California coastline. It's uh, it's born down in San Ignacio Bay in Baja, and it literally has its babies there in December. And right around now, which April, May time, it starts to hug the California coastline with its four-month-old and take it all the way to the Arctic. So this gin literally is a celebration of that wonderful gray whale and this 
crazy 12,000 mile round trip journey. So it starts in Baja. We literally hand forage botanicals from uh, lemons, limes, and oranges down in the Baja Peninsula. And then all of our botanicals are hand foraged along that migratory path. And you've got some uh, some seaweed in there too that yeah. that actually gives it sort of a little bit of an umami kick that isn't usually necessarily there in a lot of gins. Exactly. Yeah. Well, look, I I've hosted some shows on the on the Food Network and hanging around a lot of chefs, you you start to pick up on certain nuances that make the best chefs better. And it's about that you just hit the nail on the head. It's that earthy umami flavor profile. If you can hit all parts of the tongue, then you're really you know shooting for the stars. So that's what we were going for. You know, the pininess of, uh, of gin, it, that's what a lot of people are either turned off by or really turned on by. And I love juniper. Juniper is a, a key impo- component to any gin. But what's not usually there is, like you said, that earthiness. So kombu, Japanese uh, seaweed, superfood, best known for miso soup. It's the, it's the stock. It's the mm. base. It's the thing that gives it that, oh, yeah, I just want to drink more of that stuff. So it's very subtle. But it's in there, and and you can definitely notice it once we take it out because we did a lot of practicing. Um, goodness, I mean, we tried nori. Nori was a little too delicate. We tried sea palm. Sea palm was way too briny. Mm. I mean, I, I went beautiful mind, kind of crazy deep dive into any kind of botanical that could potentially work. So where did, where did you source it from? The kombu? Yeah. Wild harvested. Oh. We, we literally got in the water. And if you go to our Instagram feed, you'll see. Mm. I mean, my wife and I are in the water, waist deep, up in Mendocino County. Oh, wow. Uh, pulling out uh, kombu sea kelp. You need a license, which is kind of weird. I mean, you, it, it's it's cool that California, you know, makes it sustainable. Mm. But they only give licenses to certain people. You can't take too much. And when you forage it, so it, it comes out in this almost... It's a weird-looking um, vegetable, but it's a it's about three feet long. And imagine a hand with five fingers, with three feet long fingers. Yeah, yeah. So we cut four of them, and we leave one really, really long. And the idea being that we haven't killed the plant; it's still going to survive. Oh, oh, cool. So it's a very sustainable way to to sauce this um, <laughs> this kombu. And then once you've done that, you take this fifty-pound pack of kombu, which is bloody heavy you're tired you're wet up a little hill and then we rinse it off and uh and air dry it in the sun that's um it's cool though that's i didn't know that about needing a license but i guess it makes sense because you get especially in the cosmetics industry i know a lot of people are using seaweed and stuff in in various creams and treatments and whatnot so i would imagine if you didn't have a license they would probably decimate the ocean no doubt no doubt yeah so um you know, I, I, you know, I, I love the gin. I, you know, I, I you. tasted some yesterday. Obviously, you were there, so you know. And, <laughs> um, and yeah, the one thing that, that's really remarkable about it is it's, it's got a lot going on, but it's very, very balanced. I, I don't necessarily think any one note shines through more than another, but there's this sort of harmony. You know, if if I had to say, I would say probably maybe if there were any dominant notes. I mean, obviously, the citrus is pretty pronounced, and you know, and then there's a, there's a mint character too that, yeah. that actually comes through a lot too. But for the most part, it is it is pretty balanced. Well, I and, appreciate that. And Jeff. what's the you know, what were the challenges of really locking in that recipe? Oh, it was it was massive. I'm talking 152 recipes, and you can see I've got goosebumps right now because it was such a passion play for my wife and I. I mean, I initially, when you think about Baja, if you think about this migration, this journey, what is Baja to you? Baja for me is is citrus. It's the jalapenos in my tacos. It's the it's the lime in my Corona. It's all those things. So how do you 
how do you play with that and where do you go? So we tried dried citrus, we tried fresh, hand-zested, and we absolutely ended up with hand-zested. It was the only way to go. That The difference in flavor was massive. And you're right, you know, your, your palate is, is so bang on, but that, that flavor profile of, of citrus being a little dominant, I kind of wanted that. Mm. We wanted to know where you're from, just like... You know where I'm from. You know I'm not necessarily American with this accent. You, you're like, yeah, there's something about that guy. Mm. And and I think it, it defines who you are, where you're from. So that's what we wanted with this gin. Um, but then going up the path, I mean, you've got everything from Californian sage, bay laurel. I mean, we played with so many different botanicals. And and who knew, like, things like orris root and... Uh, uh, Goodness, I mean, there's there's, an, there's another 30 different botanicals that we played with. And actually, orris root is in this, even though it's not listed on the front of the label. But orris just is a wonderful binding agent. It brings everything together. It calms all the botanicals down. And playing with the levels was really tricky. Because we wanted, if you're going to put six botanicals on the bottle, I better be able to taste all six. And if you put a little bit too much of something, it can dominate the other and ruin it. So yeah, it took a long time. And, uh, and I think... That's what we were going for, balanced. So gin's been exploding, especially in the UK. I mean, particularly Scotland has been uh, on fire with it lately. Um, And then it's spread across Europe. I know the Spanish are very, very into their gin now, or at least they have been for the past 15 or so years. Um, Do you think that gin is finally poised to have its moment here in the One, same way that whiskey's been? 100%. Yeah. Look, I, I'm seeing this tipping point. I just did a big European trip with my wife and kids, and we were in Ireland. And, you know, they ask you two questions whenever you order a gin and tonic. And I'm talking in County Mayo, which is in the arse end of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's gorgeous. But the bartender will say to you, oh, what kind of gin do you want? And he usually passes you a giant book. So that was awesome. That The fact that they wanted to know, do you want an old Tom, a little bit sweeter? Do you want a, a London Dry? Or do you want a modern take on gin? And then the second question they ask is, what kind of tonic? And that's when I was like, oh my God, this is huge. Then you fly out of Heathrow and you, you start to see, no longer is it just vodka and whiskey in Heathrow Departure Lounge. It's all gin. Same in Madrid. So yeah, it's happening. Japan is the same thing. I mean, if you do a lot of traveling, I'm sure you know that the Japanese are, are, are exploding in gin as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's the coasts coming in. It's really down to the mixologists, the bartenders. They're starting to realize, and I think the public is too, that, yeah, Moscow Mule is awesome, but guys, wait a minute. Gin is just a flavored vodka. I mean, let's mm. let's get over ourselves. Yeah. That's what gin is. It just happens to have juniper berries. That's why we call it a gin. But the possibilities are endless. So why would I order a Moscow Mule when I can order a gin mule? Or anything I can put vodka in, I'm going to stop playing with my gin. And it gives the mixologist so much more breadth and depth, and you you can start to add flavors that you don't need to spend time making tinctures at home and making these wonderful teas, which they're so bloody good at. But if we can help them, I think it's I think it's poised to just explode in, in the U.S. Yeah, no, it's funny that you were mentioning you know, the gin mule and things like that, because I've... I've pretty much switched from drinking traditional Bloody Marys, and now I'm putting gin in my Fantastic. Bloody Marys now because it's like you, know, you just want a little something extra there, you know. And, you definitely do. And um, you know, nothing, nothing against vodka, but I just, I just feel like um, it's really just an alcohol delivery system without any character. Yeah. I mean, and that's what it's meant to be. So. It is. I mean, look, it, the definition is you have to distill it up to 95% alcohol. Mm. Uh, by doing that, you are by definition. You're, you're rectifying. You're, you're taking away a lot of the initial characteristics just yeah. to get to that point. So, so yeah, there's uh, 
there's something really cool about gin. I mean, I, there's something in the industry where we all like, and I love what St. George has done, by the way, where they put yeah. a, literally a, uh, a picture of money on the front of their, their bottle. Because that's what we all say in the distilling world, that you pay the bills with your vodka. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to create something that was truly craft. And something we could be proud of, and taste Cali in a glass. Yeah, no, so it's you know St. George. I think um, they've done a great job, especially with um, with the terroir. Oh, fam- fabulous! It would it would be really kind of neat to see if California sort of develops as gin central of the U.S. I mean, everybody's making gin everywhere, but it would be it would just like if, with you guys emerging, and then you know with them and a few others up there. I think I could really see, yeah, uh, you know, especially with this kind of whole foraging kind of thing because that that is very very california so 100 percent. you know i i i do these little gin educations and and tastings and and i talk passionately about the fact when, when you walk down a liquor aisle what do you see and most people just see the brands but no i i walk down the bourbon aisle and i see i see corn and i go oh there's the beer it's a lot of uh, a lot of barley malted barley there but then you get to the gin aisle and it's like you're walking into a greenhouse it's the foraging forest capital of the world. I feel like I'm in Kew Gardens in London. It it really excites me because you, you can you can have as much fun as you want. You like spicy? Well, there's this. You like a little bit sweeter? There's, oh my gosh. The, the, the possibilities are endless. And to taste America, like what you're saying, it's fantastic. I mean, you can have a gin from Texas that has agave and, and a little jalapeno to give a nod to the southern border and then go up to Wisconsin and you're... you're I, I don't know what the heck is up there, but I want to taste it. I, you know, you kind of want to go all over the all well, over the U.S. I think there is. I, I can't remember who the the distiller is. Um, out of Wisconsin. Out of Wisconsin, but there is somebody who is making a gin with, um, I believe, it's Wisconsin ginseng, and you know, and it's apparently that particular version of that is very, very prized all over the world, and that's why they're using it. But so, yeah, I think that whole concept of, of capturing your local terroir is—it's starting to resonate in different parts yeah. of the country, and it, you know, it'd be interesting to see how that develops because you know, every corner of the country does have something interesting that For they sure. can add. So. For sure. And, um, you know, I came across one in Oregon. I was in Sisters, Oregon, and uh, they're using these pine tips, these spruce uh, buds. It was phenomenal. I mean, it just blew me away. And, you know, that's, that's sort of, you look back into Europe and, and the distilling capitals, some places like um, Austria, you know, the schnapps. Schnapps was always about just taking some of the local products and, and refining them. I mean, that's how the Scotch whiskey started. Yeah. You've got a barley field. Well, how do we make more money from this? Well, we make beer out of it. Hey, now there's another way to make even more money. We can distill it and then cut down our costs for shipping. It, it's just, it's agriculture. It's farming. It's, it's getting back to the, to, to the land and, and, um, and tasting this wonderful, wonderful area that we live in. So uh, you're you're a very well traveled guy. So um, you've you've done travel shows and things. So um, well, first, what's what's your most recent one? That yeah, I just did a um, a new show for Travel Channel. It's yeah. called Project Z. Project Z. And uh, yeah, I go to South America and kind of try to uncover the hidden history of South America with two other fantastic explorers, uh, James Lynch and uh, Rene Del Monte. Uh, that that those two guys are legitimate badasses. I mean, they've been doing this for 25, 30 years. They were kidnapped by indigenous people. I mean, they, they had to bribe their way out. and It's just insane. So these guys are the real deal. And I'm, I'm literally along for the ride with these guys. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's we all know about the, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Ming Dynasty. But 
What about South America? We know about the Maya, the Inca, the Aztecs, but that's 15, 16, 2,000 years ago yeah. at the most. What was before them? And if, if we're talking about the Amazon region, there is no natural rock formations in the Amazon. I mean, yes, up in the northern Peruvian Andean mountain range, yeah, you're going to have Mayan temples made out of rocks. But if there was an ancient civilization in the middle of the Amazon, wow, could they have built something out of wood? And we have no clue. So, yeah, we're finding things like pottery artifacts that rival the Ming Dynasty in terms of you know, sophistication. We're seeing lines now in the middle of where the, the, the deforestation has been happening for 200 miles going in a straight line. Well, what the heck is that? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to go, that's a road. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can tell. Even though there's no real evidence uh, when you get on the ground, you're just seeing a slight indentation, but it goes for 200 miles. How much time did you spend down there? I mean, just two, two weeks, two for, weeks the, yeah. for this pilot episode. We were up in the northern part of um, Peru. Mm. And uh, did you get to, as far as like local cuisine, local drinks, what did you, what oh, were, yeah. you, what were you eating and drinking? Yeah, a lot of, I mean, we were in a, a, a little place called Lemibamba. Mm. And uh, Lemibamba is a tiny little area in the Chachapoya region of northern Peru. A lot of tourists don't really go mm. there. They go to the usual Machu Picchu. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there is a, a little spot near Lemibamba called Quelap. It's with a K, K-E-L-A-P, Quelap. And yeah, quail eggs on the on the street corners. You know, in New York, you'd be eating your hot dog right there. You're eating six quail eggs for like 10 cents. Mm, oh, it wow. Was, it was mind-blowing and just beautiful. And um, and the Pisco sours everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just, it's amazing. I, I don't know if it was the altitude but and the quail eggs, but fantastic. Did you, did you have any of the guinea pig? No, I did not have <laughs> guinea pig. <laughs> that's, that's like, that's. I guess that it's Cusco. That's their thing. That's mm-hmm. like their local dish. I, you know, it's funny because I had a, you know, when I was in in Cusco, I went to one of those. Did you drink any chicha while you were there? No, I didn't. Oh, no, it's like the corn. Yeah, you know what it is. Yeah, it's the corn, yeah. yeah um, superb. I was in like one of these little uh, dingy little chicherias in in Cusco, and uh, I was just sitting at a table drinking, and then out of the corner of my eye, and in the kitchen, I see that this little girl. She's like the daughter, the granddaughter, the person who runs the place she's chasing i see this little rodent going across <laughs> the floor and i'm thinking oh do they have rats in the kitchen like Sorry. she probably shouldn't be playing with it and i'm like and it just dawned i'm like oh it's a guinea pig that's, that's gonna be somebody's pig. dinner and oh, this little girl man. is playing with it my daughters would never forgive me if i ate a guinea pig <laughs> i've eaten some dodgy things but no, never, never guinea pigs <laughs> Some of the other uh, other places. Do you have any other pl- favorite places in the world yeah. that you like to go, like uh, like you like to eat and drink and that sort of thing? Give me a few of your, your top three or top five. I mean, London, you can never go wrong with oh, London. But I, I live in L.A., and um, you, you can't help but be uh, attracted to, to the Mexican cuisine in L.A. And uh, there's, a, there's a phenomenal restaurant right in El Segundo, which is just north of LAX when you land. Um it's called Sozal. I mean, I'm sorry, just south of LAX. Mm. Sozal. S-A-S-U-A-L. Um, it is phenomenal. Mexican with a, a modern chef cuisine kick to it. And uh, and hey, guess what? They serve our gin there now. Finally. Oh, nice. Even though that tequila, tequila, tequila restaurant, I was like, you know. How did you manage to get that? Well, it's funny. I was like, there's got to be some play on, uh, you know, the skinny uh, margarita is just uh, lime juice, agave, and tequila. Mm. Well, what about 
lemon juice, agave, and grey whale gin. I mean, grey whales are from Baja. We should be doing some... So we call it the skinny grey whale. So that's on the menu and, and just fun. But aside from that, there's a place called Saigon Dish. If you're into pho. Oh, yeah. F-H-O. Yeah. I'll pronounce it pho, but pho. It is insanely good. I mean, you'll go... It, it's in a strip mall in Torrance. Nobody knows this place. Well, I say nobody knows... The entire region knows this place, but no tourists know this place. Oh, wow. Insanely good. Well, now they do. <laughs> yes. Sorry about that. <laughs> now I'm glad I got a place that's near LAX, because usually when I get off a plane at LAX, I make a beeline to the in and out that's right there. Oh, yeah. And then, so, so now I've got somewhere else to go, which yeah, is great. You, you cannot go wrong with that. Um, I'm trying to think of other cool burger places that I... Um, yeah, see, I'm in, I'm in the place called the the South Bay, which is Manhattan Beach, Hermosa mm. Beach, Redondo Beach. And it's this little pocket that, again, a lot of tourists never, ever go to. You always go to the usual spots, the Santa Monica, the hills. The, even if you're really adventurous, you go downtown L.A. and Los Feliz. But this South Bay region is is quintessentially family, but you've got some of the best restaurants in the world. I mean, David Lefebvre is doing some amazing things at MB Post, fishing with dynamite right next door. I mean, just for the bloody name, you need to go to that place. But they have an oyster bar, and it's tiny. You'll probably wait to sit down, but you got to have... Um, oh, my gosh. He makes these bacon cheddar biscuits. Oh, wow. My, I, I mean, my mouth is salivating right now, but... Yum. Where at, whenever you go there, you've got to get those for sure. Bacon cheddar biscuits, MB Post. You can thank me later. If you're gonna go down there and you want to have some fun, I would highly recommend just going Hermosa Beach. Go yeah. walk on the boardwalk, rent a bike. Go. It, it's it'll just it's the best LA experience you can ever have. It's a good antidote for Venice, that's for sure. Oh probably, yeah. yeah, Venice is the complete antithesis. You got to be too cool. And I mean, look, I love <laughs> Venice. Venice is awesome, but. When you got wife and kids and you just want to calm down a bit, it's awesome. I mean, the volleyball scene is great. The food is great. Hermosa Beach, much more of a party scene. Manhattan Beach, much more of a restaurant scene. Tell me some more, a couple more international destinations uh, and what you like to eat and drink in those places. Well, uh, gosh, I've been to, I mean, I, I used to do a show called uh, perilous journeys on National Geographic where I drove the world's most dangerous roads and you know that took me to the Arctic the Himalayas wow. Bolivia um, gosh Panama and the Darien Gap the, did you drink Singani when you were in Bolivia? I didn't oh, gosh uh, I, need, I need to take you with me next time I go <laughs> Singa what's Singani? oh it's um it, it's it's like it's a lot like Pisco it's uh it's their great brandy um except they use one particular type of grape, it's uh, Muscat de Alexandria or something, um, but it's grown really, really high altitude. Um, I think, I think it's like, it's got to be at least, they've got to be grown at at least like 6,500 feet or something, I may have that wrong, but um, to like 9,000 feet, and um, the, the thinness of the air makes it much more... I don't want to say vulnerable because it's actually, well, I guess it is vulnerable. It makes it more vulnerable to UV light from the sun because well, yeah, you don't have a lot. It's very thin up there. But that actually does wonders for the grape. It like opens up these aromas. You get like a lot of floral character on it. And, and that comes through in the Singani and it, you know, makes it taste completely different from Pisco. So you can't even really compare it to Pisco. That's super. In that, in that respect. But, um, and the the person who's starting to put it on the map now is Steven Soderbergh because he owns a really? brand. Um, he started a brand called Singani 63, 
63 is the year that he was born. Um, and he partnered with a distillery down in Bolivia. Somebody, when he was making the movie Che, the Che yeah, Guevara, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, he, um, you know, he did a lot of filming in Bolivia. Before he went there, they had sort of a, a launch party for it. And, and one of his casting directors from there was from Bolivia. He brought him a bottle of Singani as like a, a gift. Yeah. And he just fell in love with the spirit and then he decided to launch a brand. So That's now, superb. so people, you're hearing a little, little bit more of it. Like, I think before he launched that brand, nobody really had heard of Singani in the U.S. and starting to hear a little bit of it. It hasn't, hasn't exploded by any means, but yeah. it's, it's basically the, um, the spirit of Bolivia. And they drink, they, um, they have a, a drink called a shoe fly, which is like, Singani that they mix with, I think, ginger ale and um, maybe some lime, too. And um, a lot of it's been... These days, it's more Sprite than ginger ale, but the original version is ginger ale. So that's kind of... See, that's the lovely thing about global travel. You know, you make make alcohol out of anything you've got. I mean, going to Asia with the the, the rice base and... uh, I, you know, I was in South Africa, actually in a, in a country wholly contained within South Africa called Lesotho. And Lesotho is the highest kingdom in the world. Uh, it drove a little road called the Sani Pass. You kind of go into South Africa and up there. So this is a long jaunt this for, for a show called Perilous Journeys, and I'm wanting a beer. I mean, we, yeah. we find that at the highest um, bar in the world, it's right at the top of the Sani Pass, and they have something called um, Maluti. Maluti is this... Uh, uh, Lesotho, by the way, in, in Lesotho, it's spelled Lesotho, but it's, oh, like, yeah, Lesotho, but the, you pronounce it Lesotho, and they speak Sesotho, which is spelled less. anyway, forget that, but the Maluti beer is insanely good, it might be because of the altitude, but it was bloody good. Um, is, it, is it just regular barley beer? Yes, yeah, barley in? beer, but it is fantastic, just really, really good, and I, I toyed with the idea of bringing that over to the U.S., and like yeah, beer doesn't travel that well, so nah, eh, leave it where it is. So you're you're up for um, the brand battle tomorrow. Uh, yeah, let's pretend that you've already won. So because this is going to air after it, so. <laughs> that's going to be congratulations. Tough. Thank you. I'll cut this out <laughs> if it's not. <laughs> um, wow. Okay, you're getting some buzz. I will say that you've been getting some buzz. I, I have nothing to do with it. So right, obviously, right. I'm not. <laughs> And I could be completely, completely wrong, but I'm getting the same sense that I got last year when when Bedlam won, and, and that's sort of oh, like that's, you're that's like cool. this year's Bedlam. And fingers crossed. Well, that's and, and and partly because you know Bedlam that was uh, you know vodka made from rice. It's got a very unique you yeah. know as far as vodka can have a flavor profile, um, it does. It's got a much different mouthfeel than you have from other things, and they just have a remarkable branding. They're they they're, do. They did a phenomenal job with their their bottle design. So like, hundred percent, you share that in common. You've got a great product that really kind of stands apart in an increasingly crowded field. But you've got this this incredible, you know, the blue bottle with the light the light blue bottle with the the like the white whale tail, and you've got the California map on there. So yeah, it's sort of well, like thank you. The coast of California. Map you know, Scott there. Scott did an amazing job. I mean, he he presented it really really well last year, and uh, and his bottle is gorgeous. I mean, it, it's cool and. For me, the, the, the coolest thing about his bottle is it's authentic. It's authentic to him. It's authentic to the brand. And it just feels real. It, they're not 
you know, clouding anything with with any BS. And uh, and look, I'd love to take some credit for the brand, but I have nothing to do with our brand. It is literally my wife. My wife Jan is the branding guru. She's been in advertising for 25 years. Mm. She had this vision. I mean, we were we were driving on a road in Big Sur, overlooking. Uh, if you've been to Big Sur, it's very high up. It's it's about 150 feet above the water, cliff faces. Mm. It is the most beautiful place in the world. It looks like Positano in Italy. I mean, it, it feels like the road to Hana. It, it is gorgeous, gorgeous. So the kids are sleeping in the back seat, and my wife and I are having this kind of conversation, going, wouldn't it be great to, to build something that celebrates California? And we're looking out of the window, seeing gray whales breach. So that's where this inception kind of came from. And she mentioned, where, where is the Golden State Distillery? Why don't we have a, a brand that kind of hangs its hat on being California? Where's our brandy? You know, we make some of the best wine in the world. Why aren't we drinking brandy in, in California? You know, we don't have to drink it in snifters. We can drink it with ice and uh, in the beach and like drink it the way it was meant to be drunk in Cali, Cali cool. So that kind of got me in a tailspin. This was 2015. So we trademarked that name right away. And then I went in a deep dive. I took a kind of a, a T-junction away from the branding. I started going deep into distillation, mm. practicing, working it out. I have a medical physics degree, so the science side of it was really fascinating. But Jan just went deep into the branding and said, we're not a spirits company, Marsh. You realize, I was like, wait, what, what? I thought that's what we were doing. Mm. She went, no, no, we are a Californian lifestyle brand. Oh, yeah. We got the VW bus, the 1971 bus. You're wearing vans from now on. You're wearing T-shirts with skateboards and surfing. And, and I'm like, okay, you, you keep doing that. I'm going to keep working on the product. So it, it's just this, you know, she's got a superpower. Hopefully, my superpower is, is gaining momentum. And together, you know, I... It, it's a it's a perfect team. It feels it feels nice and authentic and honest. So, hopefully, hopefully it uh, it resonates with everybody. Did you drive the bus here? Yep, you did. <laughs> Shaking my, I mean, a 1971 VW bus driving all the way from LA. It it takes seven hours. I mean, this thing is like <laughs> you're shaking, um, 55 miles an hour. You can't go any faster. It just won't go any faster. But it doesn't have the original engine, does it? Or it, it does. It does. It's a 1600 engine in there. How many miles are on it? I well, who knows? I mean, it says 95,000, <laughs> oh, but yeah, it could have gone around three times. I mean, that's a 46 year old car. It. Uh, I don't know. The, the the coolest thing about driving that. It, by the way, it's my everyday driver. I drive it all over LA. It is the greatest car I have ever owned because it doesn't matter where you pull up. I mean, I pulled up at the Peninsula Hotel. They just picked up our gin. And, you know, the Peninsula is a pretty fancy hotel. Yeah. And I'm pulling up next to Bentleys and Maseratis and Ferraris. And the valet guy comes out and goes, dude, this is the coolest car I've seen all week. And, you know, it's it just brings a smile to people's face to give you the Shaka symbol. And it, I don't know, it symbolizes happiness for me. And I just love that thing. Well, it also stands but, out, too, because everybody in this industry has some kind of vehicle. But it usually... You know, it'll be a minivan or it'll be some of them, you know, like Red Bull heads, their little Cooper Mini. Yeah, and, with a giant cab. Yeah, and, and others like a few years back, PT Cruisers were the rage that people were using for their branding and whatnot. Right. But I don't think anybody else beyond someone who's selling weed is using <laughs> a VW. I like to be in that category with the weed boys on girls. <laughs> <laughs> would you would you use cannabis as a botanical at any point? You think I played with it. You did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it it's tough. It's tough to get it through the TTB. Quite honestly, I mean, yeah. you can go the CBD route, and uh, 
you know, as, as soon as we put Mendocino on the bottle for our kombu sea kelp, they went, oh, there's another botanical you could use from <laughs> Mendocino. Went, oh, what is that? But look, it, it's still illegal in certain states. So we wanted to create a product that, yeah, if you want to taste Cali, you can. You can come on over and enjoy <laughs> Cali in a pipe or whatever you want to do. Um, but in terms of a terroir, something that is quintessentially Cali, I, I, I don't think you can go wrong with the gray whale gin. And uh, the, the last thing I want to kind of talk, you, you've done a couple of soaps, so I want to hear what that experience <laughs> was like. I thought we were not going to talk about that. <laughs> All right, I, I'll tell you. You don't have to. I no, just, I no, just, it's, it's... You're some, on, you, what, Young and the Restless and you're on Passions too, yeah, right? Jeez, yes, yes. No, I checked your sins. IMDb page. <laughs> yeah, I did, um, I did 60 episodes as, uh, gosh, I, I forget my even character name, um, Bugger, I can't even remember the character name. <laughs> 60 episodes on The Young and the Restless. I was playing, playing an FBI agent, um, but Passions. If you remember that show, that, that was yeah, a... Yeah, it was weird. It was sort of like supernatural-ish, wasn't and, it? And a lot of shirt-off scenes for the dudes. And So anyway, I get this call. Um, unfortunately, the actor that I replaced, he had a... Um, I, I think he had some sort of medical issue. He, he fell over on, on set. And uh, they. I got a call Sunday... No, I'm sorry. It was a call on Friday evening at 5 p.m. saying, can you fill in for, for an actor on Monday morning? Uh, and I was like, uh, yeah? Like, what is it? Don't worry, we'll send a courier with your, your scripts. So this stack of four inches of papers, four-inch thick stack of papers, that's your scripts for this week. And I, I mean, shitting bullets is not... I mean, I, I was absolutely panicking. And I look at my very, very first scene, and the very first scene is in bed with a girl and uh, I love making love to you in the morning was my very first line. <laughs> that was, oh my gosh. So my wife being the rock star she is, she was like, all right, let's, uh, let's rehearse. I'm like, honey, no, I mean, literally I have to rehearse like the words. <laughs> like, well, who's, who says that to begin with? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was an incredible experience. And, and weirdly enough, it's a, it's a muscle. Most people have no idea that you can pick up an entire script and you just have to let it go at a certain point. But it's a it's a muscle insofar as you can memorize words. I didn't think this was possible. I mean, I, I'm having 12-page scenes that I'm memorizing in two minutes. And I, how the heck does that happen? But when you're thrown in the deep end, it's weird what the human mind can do. And it was fun. I mean, I had I had a blast doing that. And, and you were one of um, the Agent Smith clones yes. in, in Matrix Revolution. That too. was my first ever acting um, gig. I was in Australia... Uh, playing beach volleyball on the beach and and a buddy of mine comes over he's like six foot one model dude and he's like uh, marsh what, what are you doing the next couple hours I'm, I'm playing volleyball why what are, you, what are you doing he goes i'm going to a casting for uh, this this movie called the matrix on I, I love the matrix it was awesome it was a great film what's well, the sequel it's called the reloaded and revolutions and they need a clone like an agent smith clone you got to be six one i'm, like, I'm six one he goes come with me <laughs> so we go and there's i don't know a line of 150 people and he has an agent so i walk with him right to the front and uh yeah i'm on set for six weeks being an agent smith clone with a, a literally a prosthetic mask on my <laughs> face and and i'm controlling puppets uh there's this iconic scene where keanu and um, hugo weaving run in together and fight and pouring with rain so i have a wetsuit on underneath my suit i have a prosthetic mask over my face and i'm literally controlling uh with two hands on these puppets that all turn heads at the exact same time it's the freakiest oh, wow. thing in the world and seeing hugo weaving on set like 
quite literally tearing up going, oh my God, this is the freakiest thing I've ever seen where there's 300 of me looking at myself. And that was a beautiful thing. And Oh, wow. I didn't realize they used puppets for that. I thought it was just all CGI. No, it was real puppets. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was amazing. All right. So uh, plug uh, plug away. Where can we find Grey Whale Gin? Where can we find you on the web? Where can we find you on social media? Yeah. Anywhere uh, in California right now. I mean, we're in, we're in a lot of different stores, but the best place to go would be um, any social media at Grey Whale Gin. And, and it's uh, gray spelled with an A, right? Correct. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> gray, G-R-A-Y. Whale Gin, uh, and go to graywhalegin.com, but we're in uh, Total Wine and more, BevMo, I want to say Bed Bath & Beyond, but we're not in that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, check us out. Thanks so much, and uh, appreciate this, Jeff. Well, thank you so much for doing it. I'm really, I'm really glad you're able to do this. I'm glad to have met you and um, you know have tasted your gin, and uh, I wish you so much success with it. It's going to be great, and now is the right time to be getting into that category. I so. appreciate it, buddy. And, uh, you know, as, as always, you can find me at Jeff Cialetti on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Drinkable Globe, and you can remember to buy my book, The Drinkable Globe, uh, now available everywhere you would buy books. And uh, remember, the world is out there. Drink it up. The Drinkable